Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking fellow saloners, the Phase Theory Collective, Lee S., and that wonderful Los Angeles plant shaman, Mark Y. And all of them have seen to it that these podcasts continue to come your way each week. Also, I want to thank Shane M., Nikita, Ringolod, and Lee S. once again, as these fellow saloners are the first four patrons of my new Patreon site, where I'm drumming up a little support for a new book that I'm writing. And uh, I'll tell you some more about that after today's podcast. Before that, however, uh, although I'm sure you already know this, but our good friend and esteemed elder, Nick Sand, died earlier this week. In the future, I'll be doing a special program dedicated to Nick, but in the meantime, there are already several of Nick's talks here on the Salon, and I'll link to them in today's program notes, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. Nick was, uh, well, he was one of the most significant chemists, uh, alchemists, actually, that our community has ever had. In fact, literally millions of people have enjoyed his Orange Sunshine LSD, not to mention the fact that Nick is one of the people most responsible for making smoked DMT a staple item in the medicine kits of many psychonauts. Nick was one of the most interesting people that I've ever met, and he surely will be missed by us all. So, are you ready to listen to a little more Terrence McKenna? If you happen to listen to Cat Harrison's talk at the Psychedelic Science 2017 conference, which I did via their live stream, well, you heard her make a rare mention of Terrence, who at one time had been her husband. And uh, Cat, with a big smile on her face, said that while Terrence talked a lot about mushrooms and DMT, it was actually cannabis that was his number one substance. And she said he smoked it all day, every day. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, let's listen to this tape from a workshop that Terrence did in the Little House at the Esalen Institute on August 10th, 1998. The tape is simply labeled Ellen's Questions, and I haven't cut out anything in the beginning. It starts just like this. 200 B.C. to 900 A.D., where every third male mummy has this extremely elaborate drug kit that he was buried with, a grinding tool, a snuffing tray, little bird bone tubes, even bags of vegetable matter which they've analyzed to determine that it's uh, Anadonanthra peregrina variety Sibylle. Anadonanthra peregrina was known to be a DMT-containing snuff used widely over the Amazon, but this variety Sibyl that they found, they then went on expedition right across the border from this part of Chile into Argentina and found these places where these trees are the major component of the flora. A single seed, they look like Uh, black dimes. They're thin and very smooth and shiny. A single one of these seeds will intoxicate you if you grind it up and snuff it up. So 
it's interesting. It's in trying to imagine a culture where every third male, you know, is involved in this cult or involved to the degree that he's buried with the snuffing kit. It probably means the whole population was, or at least all the men. Very little is known about this culture because it didn't write. It's a, it's a, a pre-Incan deal. And located where? In the Atacama Desert of northern Chile, which is some of the most remote, wild place on this planet. It looks like another planet. I mean, it's a desert above 10,000 feet. Uh, oases characterize, there are a couple of oases, oasi, whatever, and um, no rain has fallen there in this century, as far as the weather records go. So it's uh, one of the driest places in the world. And this explains the presence of these mummies, which are, they found thousands of them. When Manolo took over this project, there had been this sort of bent Dominican character in this town for years and years. And he had exhumed over 3,000 of these mummies and had them on shelves in, in, around. And so he was kind of a necrophilic archaeologist with a penchant for... I don't know, I wasn't there. Uh, the felt presence of immediate experience, I've talked about that a lot. It's not my phrase. The Would you say it again? the felt presence of immediate experience. In other words, it's just, it just means how it is here now for you from your point of view, which is what you're always inside, no matter where you go, awake or asleep, stoned or unstoned. Reality has a quality, which is the felt presence of immediate experience. Uh, Wittgenstein called it the present at hand. Making making a more complicated metaphor by bringing into the notion, bringing into it the notion of something which grasps. Uh, I think we've talked at times about is it Morris Berman's book Coming to Our Senses? Have you all read that, or do you know about that? It's a great book if you haven't read it, and it basically is the history of our denial of our senses and what a denial of immediate experience, pleasure, erotic pleasure, every other kind of pleasure, the Western enterprise has become. And he, has, he talks about some interesting things in there that I haven't ever seen discussed anywhere else. Uh, he talks in one chapter about the history of mirrors uh, as an indices of self-awareness. After all, a culture without mirrors is a culture where people don't care to look at themselves or don't feel the need to look at themselves. How far back can you trace mirrors? How advanced is the technology uh, of mirrors? Um, so the felt presence of immediate experience is, is I mention it a lot because 
my notion is that this is what you always have to come back to. This is what you have to measure everything against. Do you want to open the door, Paul? So this idea, we're talking about the felt presence of experience, which the, the idea being that uh, philosophy can push you one way, religious beliefs can push you another way, upbringing, uh, education, all of these things. But the real, where you really live is the felt presence of immediate experience and anything which pulls energy from that either by causing you to regret the past or causing you to spend lots of time anticipating the future or even it could be argued uh, activities where you lose awareness of yourself like reading I was always guilty of this particular abandonment of the felt presence of immediate experience. I was thinking today, a uh, day this beautiful is the kind of day where my father used to boot me out of the house, whether I wanted to go or not, uh, on the grounds that on such a day you couldn't possibly stay inside. So I used to dread days like this. It meant interrupted reading time. Um, Help me out here, Alan. What was the rest of it, besides the felt presence of immediate experience? Well, um, I was curious, in your vast storehouse of cross-referencing, in philosophy and spiritual practice, oh, yeah. the where truth comes in, the seeking of it, the telling of it. Well, I think uh, I said... Uh, this always comes up in the discussion about our psychedelic spiritual or is it legitimate and coherent to talk about psychedelics as part of a spiritual path or a moral path or a path to enlightenment and I've always said I wasn't ready to make that claim that uh, having been raised Catholic I had a pretty deeply ingrained notion of what constitutes the moral life. And then I listed one of these things they make you learn in catechism, which is, I believe, uh, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, bury the dead, visit the sick and imprisoned, comfort the afflicted, uh, a minister to the sick. And I said, I felt like if you did those things and there is a kingdom of heaven surely there is a place prepared for you but it wasn't clear in my mind what the relationship of moral good works is to self-development and uh, so Ellen's question goes to the point of what is the role of seeking truth in spirituality and I would argue that it's primary, but that it's probably the thing most fragile and most endangered in the ordinary process of seeking truth because um, everybody has too many answers. You know, you ask the question and it turns out the answers are waiting right there. 
we were laughing the other night, some friends of mine and I, over the revelation on the internet uh, on the part of a certain sect which guards its uh, privacy very highly. It was revealed against their wishes that the central teaching of this sect was that God is a clam on another planet. <laughs> and we were just puzzling over, you know, um, just how such a teaching and how its impact could be correctly managed. Uh, I... Uh, I, I, I don't know what Ellen's position is on this, but I've always felt, and this is my position and a minority position and not, a, not an orthodox position, that salvation was an act of understanding. You know, that it's all very well to feed the sick and bury the dead and all that stuff, but that ultimately somehow there was uh, some kind of a heaven prepared for those who could treat this world as a conundrum, a puzzle, a paradox, and figure it out. And, you know, this is a, there's, this is a persistent idea in folklore worldwide. You get it in Buddhism with the idea of the doctrine of the Paranirvana, that if a single being could attain enlightenment, all sentient beings would be instantaneously enlightened. So somehow we're all waiting for just one of us <laughs> to figure it out. The yes, the wanth monkey. Um, um, oh, another example of where this happens in a, on a folkloric rather than a world religious level is uh, in people's encounters with fairies and elves. You know, if you should, for some reason, get tangled up with fairies and elves, usually the only hope, the only way out, is an act of brilliant intellectual synthesis. What I mean by that is they pose riddles, and they want, and they want you to pose riddles. Well, if you're just, duh, I think then you're in bad shape. You're never going to leave the hill. You're going to sleep beneath the hill for eons. But if you can riddle your way out, it amuses them to let you go. So it's sort of this, this idea. Great world religions uh, present their own textual outpouring as a legitimate area in which to attain enlightenment. In other words, one can direct your, one's understanding toward understanding the properties of herbs, the movement of the stars, the way the weather works, or a book. doesn't matter what book. The Koran, the Talmud, the Bible, the Mandukya Upanishad, the Anuttara Yoga Tantra. It doesn't matter. But somehow, and, and this is heuristic. This is the, uh, the idea that textual analysis can, uh, can lead to some kind of higher understanding. Um, what is there more to say about that? Somehow, you know, in, given the strong intuition that 
nature is organized fractally and that man is somehow the microcosmic image of, of deity, then somehow our cognition, our thinking processes must surely be the most godlike things that we do. And so doing them is a kind of practice, you know. Maybe, you know, we've talked about this in other evenings, you know, that maybe finally what you're left with is the fairly grim conclusion that mathematics is the way. Uh, because it does contain this, it is an infinite ascending staircase of ahas into higher and higher realms of unspeakable but very pleasing understanding. Um, the, the strange thing about the spiritual quest or the quest for understanding, whether it's spiritual or not, is that how endangered it is by answers. As I said, by closure. Uh, you ask a question, what is the world? Well, 50 different factions step forward with a revealed answer that they're, they want to immediately sign you up for. So, and this sort of goes back to the tone of the first evening. You know, the truth doesn't require your cooperation to exist, but illusion does. Illusion is in the eyes of the perceiver, and in fact the perceiver brings to the illusion its, its ontos, its, its power to be a thing. Uh, truth isn't like that. So I think it's, uh, people say, well, it's not reverent to beat on the tires and honk the horn and want to drive it around the block. I don't know, that's just a funny form of reverence to think. I mean, the mushroom said to me once when I, in some epiphany, uh, found myself on my knees and it said, you know, get up, stand up, don't. Don't meet this on your knees. Meet it like an equal, you know. What's the percentage of all this lollygagging? And, uh, of course, it has that kind of uh, personality. I mean, it exalts... Uh, I was going to say freedom, but cognitive clarity. The Buddha image of all of this is Manjushri, the, the Buddha of discriminating wisdom. And Manjushri is always, not always, but in his peaceful form, always portrayed with a sword. And this sword is the sword of discriminating wisdom. It's used to cut through the scrambled illusions and delusions of the weary world to reach to the to the bodhi mind if you're if you don't know where truth is or if there is a bottom to the sea you're swimming in and all that then i think it's a very um that you feel an urgency about these questions they have to be answered you have to know uh, I don't know how many paths there are that bring you to the, this place, but certainly with psychedelics, you 
fairly quickly that urgency leaves you and you realize you now have the tools in hand to make the expedition you want to make and now the question is to proceed judiciously in an ordered fashion actually making sense out of what what you perceive the spiritual enterprise changes drastically once you have tools powerful enough to take you anywhere you want so it's not about the search for power you have the power and then what you have to decide is what are you going to do with it? Where do you want to go with it? I don't know how much there is to say about all that. I do feel like, and I'm sure anybody who's spent any time with me at all, privately or in these sessions, knows that there's a tension between the psychedelic community, which is, to my mind, an exiled tribe of scientists, the psychedelic community. We're the heirs of Freud and Jung, but booted out of the tent of science because we dared to use the human brain body as an instrument. And so the only place where we can gain shelter and comfort is at the fringes of New Age religion. But these are not our people, these people. You know, they serve strange gods and bizarre agendas, and we need to not lose our identity among them because they play by different rules. Uh, now, maybe, you know, somewhere in the history of the world, through God knows what means, the truth was actually downloaded to somebody, a messiah, a rabbi, a Buddha, somebody, a something, somewhere. But I find it unpersuasive, that idea, uh, because, uh, because truth is so contextually defined and precious that even if that had happened, what good would it have done you and me? You know, we receive these things hideously deformed by the, metamorph the metamorphosis of historical process. Yeah. One thing I've noticed in my own exploration is as I make the inquiries, I'm able to distinguish now the difference between the facts, just the physical facts, and my truth, which is influenced by my experience of the facts, my feelings, my history, my whatever. And I don't know, I just, I'm not sure what to make of that, but I have noticed that there is a difference between those. Uh, yeah, I, I think I understand what you mean. I live intellectually in a simpler universe than the one that my experience has taken place in. In other words, I could tell tall tales of shamanistic strangeness, apparent telepathy, impossible coincidental occurrences, 
even transformations of matter and th I've seen all of these things but never under controlled conditions and never with anybody claiming they understood what was going on what I doubt is that anyone understands any more of what's going on than I do not because it's an act of self-elevation that I am so smart that's not the thought. The thought is everyone is ordinary. And it's incredibly disempowering to not realize this. You know, if you think that it belongs only to the Dalai Lama and somebody else, uh, this is incredibly disempowering. The mushroom said to me once, it said, for one human being to seek enlightenment from another is like... Uh, uh, a grain of sand to seek enlightenment from another. The message, my interpretation of that being all grains of sand are capable of seeking enlightenment on their own damn steam, you know. I mean, the, not that p you people around you don't have something to teach you, but an understanding in the person sitting next to you is not your understanding. And so it does you absolutely no good whatsoever. Uh, it is only, it is only uh, efficacious and functional if it's yours. And, and so um, the primacy of the, 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 prime, the primacy of direct experience and one's own history and mathematics. And, you know, if you really study mathematics, we mentioned this the other night, you even get your legs cut out from under you there because you discover this thing called the incommensurability theorem, which shows that even simple arithmetic can't be trusted. So it turns out, you know, even our platonic faith in some kind of philosophical superspace out there that we're measuring everything against, that that's naive. Really, the only really real thing is this incredibly evanescent, ever-moving, barely grasped, hardly understood thing called the present moment as I experience it. And you say, well, my God, can you build a metaphysics and an ontology and a heuristic method on, on that? What choice do you have? Nothing else is as real as that is. You know, you, if, you, if you know the language of theoretical biology, you know that a human being, an organism, is a chemical system with granted other properties, perhaps not derivative from chemistry, but a chemical system that is riding far from equilibrium. It's in a kind of, it's, there are different terms for it. It's a dissipative structure, or it's an autocatalytic hypercycle, or it's undergoing autopoiesis. But the basic concept is that it is maintaining itself as a coherent entity in a universe flowing toward entropy. It's somehow making its way uh, the opposite direction. And, you know, your, your consciousness is embedded in one of these uh, dissipative structures 
which will, and apparently, your consciousness will cease at a certain level of disequilibrium of this system, but then when you draw back further, you see your consciousness is simply the reshuffling of the genetic deck of your ancestors, and before you existed, people potentially or partially like you existed, and after you exist, people potentially like you exist. So, the, but this, this non-dissipative energy flow where consciousness and life and everything is going on and is known through feeling, through not, not because you're embedded in it, but because you are it. Essentially, it's not something that you're embedded in, like a particle. It's, it, it is your, your essence. Well, then that's all there, all that is given with certainty. Then everything else is extrapolated outward from that through convention, language, poetic intuition, religious revelation, projected discovery, myth, so forth and so on. But that's all so far from this point of uh, immediate experience. That's why, the, to my mind, although I don't think we've ever put it quite this way before, the psychedelics are so important because taking a psychedelic drug is not like reading a book or even like moving to Italy for six months or it is, it is directly and immediately addresses this thing which you are. It becomes part of it, because what you are is metabolism. You know, the, the way this trick is done, where this dissipative structure can come into being and then ride magically uh, away from the entropy point, is because as biological systems, we take in highly organized matter, food, and we extract all the energy and everything useful from it and excrete it out. And so by this means, uh, we overcome uh, the, the general drift toward entropy. Metabolism allows life to happen. Metabolism is life in some sense. Well, the drugs are metabolized, you know. They, this is a fairly intimate way of relating to a substance. Put it inside your body and let it dissolve into every, uh, every cell of your being. So metabolism is, uh, is uh, like the primary domain of communication. It's the communication mode of the felt presence of immediate experience. And the, the drugs work there like foods. They're not that really that different than foods. They, you know, like it says in the Jefferson Airplane song, it feeds your head. I guess she was actually quoting Lewis Carroll. But in any case, it feeds your head. Um, um, what do you make of bad trips? Bad trips. They're certainly easier to do in a movie than good trips. 
I didn't see fear and loathing in Las Vegas, but everyone said it proves again that it's very easy to portray a bad trip and very hard to portray a good trip. Um, well, they're all, first of all, I'll say all the conventional things about bad trips. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's not always supposed to be easy, that uh, sometimes learning curves feel very unpleasant when they're unfolding, and uh, we learn from our mistakes and so forth and so on. So then having said all that, really what about bad trips? Well, they're horrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> bad, bad trips make bad sex look like no problem, which is an amazing thing to achieve. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the the I guess part of the fun or part of the challenge of being psychedelic people is that our method, which is drop and wait, uh, you, you, you never know. You know, you may think you know, uh, and you may do your rolfing and your go to gestalt and just <laughs> be scrubbed and drained and shined with all your enzyme systems up and going, and it can still just chew your ass unmercifully. Uh, it's one of those places where I, who am not necessarily that uh, you know, eager for astrological explanations, reach eagerly for astrological explanations. Because if everything else is right, but the, and I've even noticed, you know, Moon in Scorpio for me is not a good time to do psychedelics. <laughs> I also, you know, I, I before a large trip, I will throw the I Ching. And without spending too much time on the I Ching, I can't remember which hexagram it is, but one of the 64 hexagrams says, uh, inquire again of the oracle if you have constancy, something or else, something else, something else. And almost invariably, I mean, I have no idea how many times in my life contemplating psychedelic trips I've thrown that hexagram, the hexagram which says, ask again. And so then I ask again, and if it's negative, I, I don't do it. I figure, you know, you have right brain tools and left brain tools. Somehow this question about bad trips is about your pre-trip intuition feeling into the situation. And then, of course, there are obvious rules. I mean, there are guaranteed situations which give you bad trips. I mean, taking too much of a drug with people you don't know, uh, taking large amounts of a drug and mixing it with uh, a lot of moving around in crowded social spaces. Um, Synergies are, and synergies are simply combinations of drugs. You know, if somebody tells you they took 
ecstasy and then they snorted some ketamine and then they had a little nitrous oxide <laughs> and some GHB. This is, God knows, I mean literally only God knows because no, no clinical medical research is ever done on stuff like that. On the way people in the street actually take drugs is never studied mm -hmm. by medical science. And uh, synergies are where the strange things, the dangerous stuff happens, the heart fibrillations, the convulsions, the convulsive vomiting, the states of disorientation, prolonged states of sleeplessness, all of these things. Uh, so, you know, my attitude toward avoiding bad trips is for social purposes, raves and beach parties and whatever, low doses, you know. It's a, almost a truism, or it is a truism, that if you, if you want to come down from a drug, whether a psychedelic drug or any other drug, the very best thing to do is furious exercise. You know, the guy who throws himself in the icy lake and swims across it, the guy who chops two cords of wood to come off some bender. Well, then uh, a, a dance club is almost like the perfect social situation designed to shorten a drug trip and dampen the effects. But people are such social creatures. You know, I've said in, in many, many times over the years to the point where it's almost the McKenna method, although how you could think something so simple-minded was a method, was like the way to take psilocybin, for example, is take a, a stiff hit, like five grams if you're a 145-pound person, on an empty stomach and lie still in silent darkness. Well, this is almost the opposite of, you know, and the idea is you don't want, you want to concentrate on the thing itself, which is the drug projected against the black screen of your mind. You don't need doof coming in. You don't need smart drugs. You don't, all of these things are actually distractions. And I think people don't, are so reluctant to follow this advice because they actually have no faith in the drug. They think they will be bored. They think, well, if I did that, nothing would happen. Well, I'm telling you, you know, it's for ordinary people, isn't that what we said? This stuff is not for the swamis. They have their own methods. This is, uh, this is for the great unwashed masses of spiritually seeking humanity. Uh, so uh, lay down in silent darkness and take a look. Um, and then if the trip is really bad, then there are things you can do while it's happening that are helpful. Uh, the most obvious one is, uh, or the most effective, I don't know if it's the most obvious, but I really believe it's the most effective, is if you get into a place that you don't like, uh, and it's not physiological, it's not that you're having convulsions or vomiting, it's just that you're having 
thoughts which alarm you, you should sing. Uh, you can make whatever shamanic hash of this you wish, but the basic concept is to oxygenate your brain. There's something about bad states of mind on psychedelics are very frequently, in my observation, accompanied by shallow breathing. People get, you know when you thread a needle, everybody holds their breath. Nobody can thread a needle without holding their breath. It's like keeping your eyes open while you sneeze. A person, a human being cannot do this. So it, when we are really following our thought at the level of threading a needle, we stop breathing. And if you're not paying attention, this can go on for minutes, this very shallow breathing. You know, you're not breathing, dude. So, uh, and, and so what the thing to do is to sit up and uh, you know, your favorite shamanic chant, uh, Fleetwood Mac recitation, or whatever, just belt it out. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it may matter. I mean, if you choose certain mantras or something, you know, haystacks will burst into flame. But, uh, you know... And there's no obligation to be accurant or hip either. You know, it doesn't have to be Aphex Twins. It can be uh, row, row, row your boat. I've always preferred because it does contain the refrain, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. If you're loaded on psilocybin or ayahuasca, the thought that life is but a dream opens ahead of you and becomes epiphanous instead of ridiculous. Uh, and then, and then I don't know, this is what I do. This is maybe not universally good advice, but when I take psychedelics like that, I have bombers rolled, and, and, uh, and if things get weird, I torch them up, although sometimes then things get weirder. The, you have to be careful with that. I mean, the way I do it, and I've really got this down, sort of, is with psilocybin anyway. It, you know, people say it comes on in 10 minutes, it comes on in 20 minutes, and they're ripping in 40 minutes. It doesn't work like that for me. It consistently, and I always take it, not in tea or anything, but just the mushroom, I eat it. At the hour and ten minute mark, it begins to 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 come on. I guess. I mean, there's a feeling of nausea and maybe coldness, and and there's just like a certain window of opportunity where then, if you smoke cannabis, it it immediately begins the hallucinations very dramatically and moves you quickly through that clammy, handshaking part of the trip, which is uh, sometimes alarming. Most of my experience with cannabis, it's improved the... If a trip was weird, it got better with cannabis. I have had you know, many experiences where it was so strong that the 
thought of smoking a joint was just like, no, I don't think so. I think we'll just <laughs> take this as given here. We don't need to amp it up or push it <laughs> sideways. Um, I, I, but nobody does this a lot who doesn't then occasionally put in a very difficult evening. And, you know, part of your psychic, I guess your shamanic constitution is how quickly can you come back from a really bone-shaking psychedelic experience, either because it blew your mind in some way or something appalling happened. I remember, I mean, I remember a number of psychedelic trips that were hard to come back from, but I remember one in particular years ago where my friend and I took a lot of acid and um, and um, late in the trip, like about 3.30 in the morning, he had a very dramatic epileptic seizure. And I had never seen an epileptic seizure. And... Um, Oh, God, it, it just set off this cascade of hysterical activity. The, the, the 911 people had to be called. I remember there was a real moment of truth in all this for me. I remember the apartment was on the second floor, and, uh, and I saw the cop cars and everything pull up in front. We had flushed staggering amounts of dope. Uh, mm -hmm. knowing that they were about to arrive and I went tearing down to the front door and I was completely loaded on acid I mean I could barely stand and I could see through the glass this, the cop and he said open the door we had locked the door earlier and he said open the door so I fumbled with the door for a few seconds completely hysterically and ineffectively and then I couldn't get the door open so I stepped back from the door and said shoot the lock off <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized Dude, <laughs> get a grip. <laughs> you're, you're going to have to, um, you know, th this is headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> and the cop was like... <sighs> so then, and, and then I remember, you know, this, this trip to the hospital and... and uh, I don't know what was going on. It was Herrick Hospital. It was in Berkeley, which was also a mental hospital. This bed, me standing at the end of the bed, trying to figure out, is he dead? Is he alive? What does this mean? Who am I? What's going on? And then there was a person who was obviously an inmate of the stranger wards of this m mental hospital who was washing the floor with this big mop and sort of waltzing around us with this crazy expression and leaning over and looking at me and looking at him. And I just didn't know whether, is this really happening? And if it is happening, why is it happening? <laughs> and if it isn't happening, why do I think this is what's happening? And, and then I like 
finally the doctors threw me out of there and I just walked the streets of Berkeley for hours and my mind was like spinning, just saying, something terrible has happened, something terrible, terrible, terrible has happened. And it took days to, to you know, realize, yes, he had an epileptic fit, here's what an epileptic seizure is, here's the drug, here's the prognosis. Here he is, seemingly all right. He came through it in much better shape, it seemed, than I did. I mean, I was deeply spun by all of this crazy shit. And that's not an out-of-control drug story. I mean, truly, I'm a very conservative person, so for me, that was an evening really getting beyond management. But some people, you know, start out like that. <laughs> I, I had friends in the 60s in New York City who would say, you know, in Manhattan, they would say, let's take 500 mics and hit the streets and mess with people's minds. Well, and you quickly discover there are people out there capable of messing with your mind and more than your mind. And But sitting up all night in Manhattan diners just taking on all comers for mind games is... You know, no way to uh, spend an evening. <laughs> anyway, so much for the question, uh, what do you do about bad trips? If you have character, you live through them, and after a few months, go back to it. Many people, it it's a bad trip that finishes them for psychedelics. And I don't think, you know, you're ever really uh, immune to it. The funny thing about psychedelics, I think, especially psilocybin, I've noticed, is it's incredibly gentle with beginners. It almost never bites a beginner, you know, these clueless people who go to it with knees knocking. Usually, you know, the doors of heaven open and they're swept in. It's the veterans, it's the old battle-scarred uh, explorers who you know, come back from a certain given evening with their eyes bugging and uh, a tale to tell. And I primarily from Stan, that there is no such thing as a bad trip. There is the wrong context, which is what you were saying in source. That if you follow your, he's, he's like you, he thinks I shave and, you know, shut out the world. And so you meet the demons and you go through the doors of hell and you're in the belly of the whale and all of those other things, it's just your ego slamming around and you'll come out of that with information and hopefully, if you really let yourself go down that far, the doors of heaven will open too and then one begins to dance between those two spaces. Yeah, the, the only place where I really think the concept bad trip is legitimate and it, it, it is true in my experience as well as my opinion is is when you mess with the actual physical substances in some way uh, in other words if you take pure psilocybin pure LSD well-made ayahuasca there is no such thing as a bad trip it will teach you it will it may put you through hell, it may change your personality, but it's useful. Uh, where it gets chancy is if you are physic 
physiologically compromised in some way. For example, and this is kind of controversial, so it's worth talking about, but in my opinion, it's a very bad idea to combine uh, psilocybin with an MAO inhibitor. But people I respect, as much as I respect anybody, do this in their therapy. And so here, and so I've looked at this hard because the, the, the worst drug experience I ever had revolved around this combination. And I think my mistake, I did it differently than these people who use it therapeutically. As I understand it, the way they're doing it is they're inhibiting their MAO with, say, Pagaman Harmala, and then they're taking a little bit of psilocybin. I have no judgment on that because I've not done it. What I did once years ago, to my immense regret, was I took half a dose of mushrooms, two and a half grams of mushrooms, and half a dose of ayahuasca, 50 milliliters of ayahuasca, and I put in a long, strange evening that felt dangerous to me. I mean, we only have my account, but um, something went on in that trip that I've never seen in any other trip, and I can describe it for you, and I even can have an analysis of it, but I'm not sure that the analysis is true. What happened was the trip seemed normal for the first hour or so. And then I, 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 in the part of the trip where I should have been smoothly hallucinating, roving and scanning, taking in data and learning, I began, I noticed a, a rising anxiety that I could not, couldn't control. And the anxiety was, uh, it was a generalized anxiety. It was a feeling, a strong feeling that something was wrong. And so then I, I would, like, stop my, whatever my trip was, and deal with this feeling that something is wrong. And I would look around and reassure myself, nothing is wrong. You know, heartbeat, okay, you're sitting in the chair, moonlight is flooding in, the cat is at your feet, nothing is wrong. So I'd go back to tripping. Thirty seconds later, something is wrong. And I would come out of it after about f four or five times of this, and it was getting, the loop was getting faster and shorter. I could, even on the trip, I analyzed what was going on. What was going on was no short-term memory was happening at all. I, I, I knew who I was. I could tell you my parents' story and so forth and so on. What I had lost was the last 30 seconds of my life didn't exist. And this may not sound like a problem, but in fact it's like having your big toes cut off or something. You can't stand anymore. The absence of the last 30 seconds creates this bizarre sense of a vertiginous void behind you. And you keep looking around. And then 
it's there. You say, oh, well, it is there. Now I feel like it's not there. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, it's there. Well, this is crazy-making, and it may not sound, you know, so agonizing, but I found it to be as close to madness as anything I've ever experienced, and I felt at times that they'll just find me here, just gibbering. They'll just, you know, throw a light gnat over me and take me by the elbow and lead me away, and that'll be it. Uh, and then I, and then finally, and I had this very overlaying this thing was this very strong image from uh, Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, where the guy is outside the spaceship in the little robot, and it, he fixes the thing, and then it's time to go back in, and he speaks to the to the main robot controlling the spaceship, and he says, "Open the pad pod doors, Hal," and the robot says. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. He says, open the pod doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. And I could almost see in my mind's eye, maybe because I think to some degree in a chemical fashion or something, but I could see that a piece of machinery was jammed that we were in a loop that it would not it, it was screwed up at the molecular level and i and i felt crazy i felt violent and uh my wife was sleeping upstairs uh, finn was tiny clea hadn't been born and i felt absolutely irrationally violent toward everybody and everything because of this odd collapse of my sensorium. And so then I said to myself, I will not leave this chair till this releases me. I just will sit here. Now that might have been a bad decision. In other words, I could have gone out and chopped wood, but I don't think that was the moment to pick up the double-bladed axe. And so I sat there and I deep breathed and I did every trick I knew. And after about an hour and a half, it just, I could see it rotate around, decouple, drift away. And then it was like, ah. The trip begins again. It feels like a normal trip. We're right back where we were an hour ago, and everything is normal. And you know, but that was—I broke my own rule. It was an experiment. Yeah, it was an experimental combination, and it's not necessary. I mean, don't get the idea that you have to take every drug that comes down the pike so that when people mention to CBT2 and all this, you have a story to tell. Uh, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, and ayahuasca, little DMT now and then, it'll do you. That's it. You know, you can spend a thousand lifetimes exploring those substances and to never have a dull moment. Uh, <laughs> what? A little dabble do you indeed. Mm -hmm. I it, it seems to me that nothing is good in combination with something that has, it's an MAO inhibitor. It should be is that 
it's not just psilocybin. What? Give me another example. You mean like pagamon harmala and DMT? Well, I don't know. I don't know enough chemistry, but I just what I know about MAO inhibitors. Combining it, I know somebody, someone here recently was on an MAO inhibitor. Oh, a prescription one. A prescription one and took ecstasy and went into cardiac arrest and died. Not from the cardiac arrest, but from passing out and what happened as a result of passing out. Didn't, then nobody knew and so death occurred. Well, that's an extreme example it shows you, it exactly makes the point I made earlier, that these synergies are completely unstudied. And that's a simple synergy. Ecstasy uh, with a prescription MAO inhibitor. If this person had also, you know, added in a little ketamine and some GHB, and as people do, I mean, I've people have told me appalling story, recitations of the drugs they took the night to the night before. Uh, you know, this MAO thing is sensitive enough that if you are on certain MAO inhibitors, you don't need to take a drug to bring on a hypertensive crisis. You can just drink a glass of red wine or eat camembert cheese or abuse a Hershey bar or eat a, or eat a big bowl of lentil soup. Who, who would dream that a bowl of lentil soup could uh, send you over the edge? Uh, so yeah, it it pays to do your homework, and then it pays to, uh, you know, I think if you're getting good mileage from a, a particular psychedelic, you should just stick with it. You can always switch to something else, but, you know, and people say, well, I've learned all I need to learn from this. Well, triple the dose, and it'll be a different horse <laughs> ride, you know. And, and, and I say that, you know, within the knowledge that the LD50 of these compounds is very high. In other words, they're incredibly safe of all drugs, the the plant psychedelics, the alkaloid psychedelics, are the safest, and yet their effects are the most dramatic. Uh, in other words, the LD50 for psilocybin is uh, uh, milligrams per kilogram. Well, that but but the effective dose for a 135 pound person is 20 milligrams. Well, then that means that from a pharmacologist's point of view, if you told him you'd taken 100 milligrams, he would form no sense of alarm. He would say, well, you took a big dose. It's really going to get you high. But he wouldn't worry about your heartbeat or anything like that. T to, to kill yourself with psilocybin, you would have to eat a massive amount. Well, people say, well, but you think you're going to die. Well, that's an entanglement of ego image with body image. And, you know, when the, the ego is very fragile, I mean, you just, 
shoot 100 milliliters of ketamine and the ego is uh, dissolving before your very eyes and that's not a very that's not a uh, an intrusive dose of a drug the ego is fragile the body is is not the the ego plays the ace you're dying but you're not dying the ego is dying you know, if you've not trained medically, and I'm not, it's extremely alarming to have somebody become unconscious in your presence and not be able to rouse them. I've talked to, the, to a number of times to friends of mine who are professional ER, emergency room doctors, and they say, it's no big deal happens all the time uh, not and if somebody can claim they're dying they certainly are not dying uh, and it and if they're hysterical that they're dying they certainly can't be anywhere near death because that's not the presentation of the near death uh, situation so if there's any doctors in the house who want to dispute <laughs> Well, I don't know. Any more on any of that? We sort of... There's a lot of will in this community to talk about psychedelic drugs, probably because there's the terrifying knowledge of the things I will talk about if we don't talk about psychedelic <laughs> drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid at any cost. <laughs> um, I just talked to somebody at length on the phone yesterday who was describing a psychedelic experience, and they were a person of moderate experience, but this was definitely a trip that uh, pushed them into domains they had never experienced before. And it was uh, basically the middle of the night around a suburban swimming pool. Everybody had gone to bed, and this person was there, and discovered that there are these protoplasmic, heat-seeking, intelligent creatures, roughly the size of pickup trucks, that are moving around in backyards and climbing over fences and uh, you know and i I've, i i think i know what they're talking about i've ac acoustical creatures i've encountered uh being stoned on a hillside on psilocybin out in a fairly remote area at night and you become able to like project your consciousness very large it's a little hard to explain how it is but and then you discover that there are infrared forms of life or something coherent protoplasmic things and i always think of that incident i think it's in the second carlos castaneda novel where the the thing comes near him in the sagebrush and he's so horrified that he throws himself on the ground and he doesn't look but he can hear boulders being ground to powder by this thing as it rolls nearby him through the the sagebrush um, 
Yeah, attention. There are, I, I don't, uh, the, the, the life forms in nature are not infinite, but they are myriad. And the, the, the relationship between the edge of knowledge and the wilderness, that's where the real boundary is. It's not a physical boundary. It's a boundary in understanding and expectation. <laughs> you know, when they first began digging, like in the 14th century in Europe, they figured out how to dig mines deeper than they had ever dug before. Before that time, no mine in the world had gone deeper than a thousand feet. And suddenly they were able to push these mines deep, deep into the ground in Bohemia, Switzerland, southern Germany. And they encountered for a couple of hundred years elf attacks and gnome sightings and attacks in these dark galleries of these deep mines. And it's and then so the, the question is like, or for the positivist mind, the question is, well, are there elves in deep mines in Europe? Well, apparently there were once. There, it, it's a it's a boundary of understanding and expectation. The relationship of the deep earth to the medieval imagination is somewhat like the relationship of the modern imagination to the sky. The sky is a place where we see an encounter and where rumors abound of life forms and uh, even in forms of intelligence. I'm very interested in all of this because uh, my inclination has always been to be rational and fairly demanding of robust evidence. But on DMT, you know, elves are everywhere, and the a commonality of the experience. Well, then, what it, what is the nature of these beings? Are are is the psyche, the human psyche, a sufficiently undefined domain that it can actually contain the idea of? autonomous life forms in the psyche. I mean, this is what a, a kind of Jungian explanation. Uh, Jung said of these things called kabiri, which are alchemical sprites, basically. Kabiri just means children, but alchemical sprites that are seen in certain parts of the alchemical work he said autonomous portions of the psyche escape the ego's control. Well, you know, then what are we? Uh, are we, in fact, not what we think we are? In other words, our myth is one body, each body comes with an ego. If the ego is fragmented, you need psychotherapy. Uh, it makes sense that it's one body, one ego, because then there's no struggle about deciding who's in charge. The ego is in charge of the body. But what the psychedelics seem to show is that at least under that kind of pressure, the mind is sort of like the atom. Previously imagined to be indivisible, 
you get it smashed and suddenly all these exotic constituent parts are flinging themselves around in your awareness the equivalent of uh, of uh, mesons and uh, protons and quarks and uh, electrons uh, what does that mean about the self and the structure of identity uh, it may not mean very much until we get deeply evolved in our electronic prostheses then we may discover, you know, that the dissolution of the ego turns each one of us into a tribe or a society of some sort. I mean, I don't pretend to understand this, it, so I understand that what I'm saying is not entirely clear. But, uh, you know, when you bring a mirror, when you have a mirror, and you bring it down in front of you like this, like on concrete, and smash it, and it smashes you don't see a shattered image of yourself you see thousands of perfect images of yourself each shard of the mirror instantly becomes a whole reflection and i think that this metaphor of the smashed mirror recalls the alchemical metaphors of the mercurial nature of the mind the mind is mercurial the alchemists insisted and what does that mean mercurial well if any of you had a childhood in these non-toxic days this doesn't happen but i used to be one who broke open hearing aid batteries and god knows what toxins i exposed myself <laughs> to in the act of collecting mercury but mercury is of course a perfect mirrored surface a liquid metal and how is it like mind well it's like mind in two ways first of all it fills it takes the shape of its container you know put it in a coffee cup it has the shape of a coffee cup put it in a thimble it takes the shape so like mind which is known only by the shape of its container mercury does this the other thing is you know when you when you smash it 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 beads and speeds away in all directions but it can be recollected and the image restored and and so it has this curious quality of being both uh multiplistic and unitary and it's probably for these all these qualities that the alchemists were were uh so fixated on it but this 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 question of the nature of these entities because you know we can debate whether they are part of ourselves or part or autonomous but what seems pretty in hand is that whatever the answer to that question they're not made of matter i mean they're not made of matter in, unless you're going to take the position that when you smoke DMT you actually go to another universe as real in every way as this one which is arguable but but they well so then what are they well they they 
leaving aside for the moment whether they are self-generated or autonomous they seem to be made they are in fact if they're made of anything they're made of information uh, well we are not made of information for ourselves I mean I experience myself as a body not as information however I experience all of you as information I mean, even if I grab you by the shoulders and shake you, it's information that identifies to me what is happening. Um, I, my hope is sometime before the end of my life or my career that the definitive conversation is able to take place on this question of uh, the edge of knowledge or the what's going on at the edge of understanding because that's you know here we have the unthinkable no reason to bother about it it's unthinkable by definition and here we have the utterly mundane uh we all know that place but somewhere between the unthinkable and the mundane that there is a gradient or a frontier or a corner that is turned and that place is the human place i don't think animals dwell in that place the place where you know expectation meets incoming data and reality is defined i mean it is the most human place it's our edge not the edge of our body which is topologically confined in 3d but our mind seems to actually have a kind of edge it's our memories extend outward from our birth our the future is difficult to triangulate but the the edge of mind is uh, always accompanies the phenomenon of being i think you know that poem by trumbull stickney one of those poets who died in the first world war one of the young men of the trenches that whole generation um satchavel sitwell and so forth and so on but trumbull stickney said uh, i do not understand you it is because i lean over your meaning's edge and feel the dizziness of the things that you have not said and in this psychedelic enterprise it seems that this this is where the action is the vertiginous dimension of the thing not said not said because it can't it can't be said we're working hard here to say everything that can be said and you know once it can be said it becomes of considerably less interest but this idea that something wants to be communicated something wants to be told it, it's sort of we mentioned the other night the idea of the word made flesh well this is a parallel idea this is the parallel idea of the message that wants to be delivered you know it's for christians it's the gospel for finnegan's wake it's that letter 
from Boston that the little chicken is scratching at down at the midden. Hear a little, there a little, go a little, do a little, see a little. The mysterious missive from Boston. The message that wants to be delivered. And I've, I always have the feeling in the psychedelic experience that you, you, you come closer to this domain of the of the of the undelivered message this person who was describing this trip to me the other night said long parts of the of the experience were hallucinations of tables of numbers well that's a strange one uh, just numbers and numbers and numbers it's like the thing trying to communicate is not at all sure about who it's communicating with it doesn't know quite how how it is perceived, how it is understood, how it is uh, folded into meaning. Well, I, that's probably not very clear, but uh, anyway, it's not very clear. If it were clear, it wouldn't. It would be something else. Anybody have anything else on any of this, or anything else for that matter? It's very interesting to me how um, I'm, I'm just sort of getting a grip on this. Uh, maybe because we're approaching the end of a century and the end of a thousand years, or maybe because of the reading I've been doing, but I'm beginning to understand how no matter how hard you try, no matter how intellectually vigilant you are, it's very hard not to be a creature of your own time. That the, you know, the metaphors that we use, the expectations that we form are inevitably drawn from the atmosphere that we breathe. I, I've been reading Eric Davis's soon-to-be-published book about technosis, and called Technosis. And he talks in there about... Uh, how since the mid-19th century, the whole notion of electromagnetic radiation has been articulated, and how very few people can write the equations, that this, the Maxwell field equations that define electromagnetic radiation. And yet, all of our thinking is permeated by popular downloads of this understanding how we think of falling in love, how we think of uh, uh, spirituality, how we think of God itself is very strongly colored by the technical environment in which we've uh, evolved. If we had to describe to someone in the 1860s of the last century how a century in the future every single centimeter of space around this planet would have music pouring through it, hourly news casts, stock quotes, uh, airline control traffic. And so. This is a completely occult universe you're describing. There was nothing. It's amazing that the, that the idea of magic 
could even get going in a world without the concept of electromagnetic fields, radiation, action at a distance. The whole vocabulary of electricity supports the idea that the world is, you know, unified through magic some kind of permeating medium where somebody can turn a dial over here and something can happen uh, halfway around the planet. Um, and I, you know, imagine in a shamanic society without the metaphor of electricity, how these drug states, how difficult it would be to build linguistic models uh, of them. Because we always think in terms of fields, vibrations, permeating changes, stat uh, discharge, potential, positive, negative, flow. Uh, think of the, the models of the human body that are taught at Esalen. How meaningless all those vocabularies would be without these concepts directly drawn from a mechanical universe. The whole idea of, of flow, blockage, potential, positive energy, negative energy, balancing. I mean, these are essentially the terms of electrical engineering of the, of the 19th century. Does that mean that these models of the body aren't real or correct? No, not at all. It means that the general understanding of the world that is our legacy as a civilization permeates everything, permeates everything, whether we're conscious of it or not. I mean, even something as far removed from the engineering domain as falling in love is, uh, <coughs> you know, you speak of the spark and being struck and uh, uh, drawn together and uh, uh, all metaphors from the from the technical uh, domain. Yeah, did you want to say something? I'm at the end of my glass of water. I may be at the end of my rope. Anything else this evening, or shall we knock it off here? On my list, well, on my list, I was going to actually talk more about aliens, but... Uh, yeah, 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 bring it on, bring it on. Oh, yes. <laughs> Only because I knew it was a crowd pleaser. <laughs> okay, well, what I just said is actually the lead-in into talking about aliens, because aliens are... Uh, throw into high relief this question of about where is the edge of knowledge? Where is the edge of the self? How do we image the world without contaminating our models with our technical assumptions? Uh, maybe some of you saw the New York Times on Sunday. There was a review of yet another book about aliens, and it, it talked about... Uh, sightings that occurred uh, in the 19th century uh, before the invention of fixed-wing aircraft in Kansas. Uh, in the latter years of the 19th century, there were several instances where apparently perfectly ordinary human beings landed aircraft 
on dusty roads spoke briefly with farmers who were haying their crops and then flew off. Well, so then now what does this mean in the light of the fact that by 15 years later aircraft had been invented and these things were happening? Is it that the future arrives incrementally, almost as a particulate gas, and uh, first in fantasy and dream, and then, thank you, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, more concretely later, the, the alien phenomenon uh, in its modern form begins essentially in 1947, when an airline pilot flying near Mount Rainier uh, reported these discs, this, this formation of flying silver discs, the standard image. And then it was just a few months later that the, the Rock, Roswell incident occurred, which the government, it's interesting if you actually go through the primary documents of the Roswell incident, the government immediately announced that it had captured a flying saucer. But then, within 24 hours, corrected itself and said, no, it was the detritus of a high-altitude weather balloon experiment. To me, the fact that the government immediately announced that it had captured a flying saucer doesn't indicate government collusion. It indicates government cluelessness. They were as stampeded as everyone else by the the so-called Rainier Lights. There was a, a climate of possibility in the mass psyche at that moment for very good reasons. I mean, uh, the human soul had just been exposed as an abyss, and by that I mean the news of the Holocaust and the death camps and the smoke was hardly cooled from all of that. The atom bomb had been used against human populations. The hydrogen bomb was right behind it. It was actually a moment in Earth's history where if there were cosmic observers, if there were cosmic policemen who come to naughty planets and correct uh, unsavory social practices we were probably if there is any hit list we would have been on it at that moment uh, enough bad shit had gone down that uh, there was every reason to expect that possibility as time passed it became clear that uh, apparently no cosmic cop was on the way no ticket was going to be written and the UFO thing developed uh, all kinds of strange adumbrations. Uh, I, I mean, one thing I think you have to assume is that anything which happens on a psychedelic drug at any dose level must occasionally happen without a psychedelic drug. Uh, maybe one in a million. In other words, if you give somebody DMT, if you give a million, if you give a thousand people DMT at the dose I tell you, 990 of them will see elves. Well, 
to see elves without DMT, maybe one in ten million people have fleeting brushes with this. But nevertheless, one in ten million is, what is it, 5,000 people uh, on this earth who have that experience. That's a sufficient number of people for there to be a myth, a whisper, a buzz, as they say, that these things are happening. Uh, it seems to me ordinary experience is in a way less reliable than psychedelic experience because the anomalous ordinary experience is almost never predicted. It just happens, you know. It always begins, I was just driving to my sister-in-law's <laughs> when, you know, and then this thing breaks through. Uh, the, the, the drug as a tool to elicit the phenomenon gives you what you never had before, which is uh, some kind of control over the appearance of the phenomenon. Uh, one of the things that's always puzzled me about psychedelics is that people who don't understand what psychedelics are about always ask the question, can you do it on the natch? You know, is yoga the same thing? Is meditation the same thing? Can this be achieved with diet, exercise? Well, the answer is A, no, and B, why would you want to? And the whole point is that this is what the drug does. Uh, you would not wish this experience to come upon you un, untriggered by pharmacological means, or you would have to wonder just exactly what your story was. That's like wanting to walk on water or move 120 miles an hour without benefit of machinery. It's just not, uh, it's just not in the cards. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I'm still laughing at that story Terence told that I'm now thinking of as his shoot the lock off story. Maybe uh, the symposia team should use that clip as a, uh, an introduction of some kind to their storytelling sessions so people get an idea of what a great drug story can be all about. And uh, I suspect that you also noticed something that I can't remember Terence ever having said before. And that is that perhaps when psychedelics dissolve the ego, that each and every one of us then turns into a whole tribe. I'm going to try to think about that for a while when I'm really stoned, because uh, I'm, I'm not sure what it means, but it certainly sounds like something interesting to think about, doesn't it? Now, uh, just a quick word about my new Patreon site. To be honest, uh, I didn't know about Patreon until our friends at Symposia began to talk about it. So I checked it out and discovered that it might be a good way for me to go about releasing a new book that I'm working on. Basically, it's a collection of brief stories about things that I've done or have happened to me. And uh, so far, I've written over 150 of them. And each week, I'll be posting at least two of these stories on my Patreon site, where my readers can uh, not only read them, but can also let me know uh, whether they think they should be included in the published book. And I'm also planning on posting some of the hundreds of brief ideas that I have for new stories, and will be asking my patrons which ones I should be writing next. 
There's a lot more to this, but I'll spare you the details because you can read all about it on my site, which you'll find at www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Lorenzo Haggerty. All one word, all lowercase, and Haggerty with one G. Oh, uh, and I almost forgot. You see, my plan is to publish this book directly into the public domain, which means that you'll be able to download it for free and uh, even print and sell copies if you want. And uh, this will all be thanks to my Patreon patrons, whose names are going to appear in the published book as the uh, people who are responsible for giving away the copies. And uh, if this is a little confusing, then just go to my Patreon page, and I think you'll uh, find all of the details there that you need to better understand this new phase of my writing career. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>